Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the efforts that humans have made over the centuries to to master the great wide blue above us, to take to the skies as the birds do, to wrest control of the heavens and make them our own. Humans have been absolutely fascinated by flight, or at the very least by attempting to fly, uh, for a very, very long time indeed. And for much of our history, we were extremely bad at it. But after years and years of inventiveness, desperation and perseverance, we finally live in a world where you can sit in, well, I mean, not in comfort, but you know what I mean, and zip through the air at a million miles an hour to all the far-flung corners of the globe and not really think too much of it. But this was only possible with the pioneering work of countless scientists, engineers and inventors that gave their lives, sometimes figuratively and sometimes literally, to the problem of making humans fly. Even in ancient myth, there are tragic stories of the dangers of flight that warn us against hubris, warn us against leaving our natural place with our feet firmly on the ground. Uh, the ancient Greeks famously tell us the story of Icarus, who affixed wings to himself with wax and soared like an eagle until he flew too close to the sun, which caused the wax to melt and for Icarus to plummet into the sea and drown. A sobering warning about the dangers of flight and reason enough, you might think, for us to curtail our arrogance and be happy with our place here on the ground. But as XKCD's Randall Munro puts it, I've never seen the Icarus story as a lesson about the limitations of humans. I see it as a lesson about the limitations of wax as an adhesive. And that is very much the attitude taken by various aviation pioneers over the centuries. And so today and next week, we will talk about how we, as humans, overcame our limitations and, like Icarus, took to the air. And how also, like Icarus, many of us came crashing down a little earlier than expected, but hey, you can't win them all. This week, we're going to talk about the ancient origins of human design flight, the efforts that many fatally optimistic people made to fly with the use of wings and ornithopters and other largely ineffective inventions. We'll talk about hot air balloons finally getting us into the air uh, and how they changed and evolved as, as time went on. And then next week, we'll move on to heavier than air flight and how, uh, how the 20th century forever changed our world with the advent of widespread aviation, how in less than a century, we went from the first sustained powered flight to breaking the sound barrier with aircraft. There is so much to get across both this week and next week. So let's not hang about any longer. Let's get into the history of flight starting right back at the beginning. Here we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to around 500 BCE to, uh, and this will not surprise anyone who has been a fan of half-house history for a while, seeing as we're talking about important inventions, to ancient China. China was very, very quick off the mark with all sorts of world-changing inventions uh, for a rundown on some of the most significant contributions that the Chinese have made to the ongoing march of technological development. You can have a listen to uh, episode 143, The Four Great Inventions, get across it. Um, but look, it might, it might sound like a weird place to start the history of flight, given that, you know, you might think we'd just be talking about planes and helicopters and hot air balloons. Um, but before we could get humans to fly, we actually 
had to first figure out how to get bloody anything at all to fly. Uh, And it looks like the ancient Chinese were the first to do it, as far as we can tell. In around 500 BCE, perhaps even earlier, the Chinese made kites out of silk with bamboo frames, and they put them to all sorts of uses, measuring the strength or speed of the wind, sending messages, uh, military signaling, and most interestingly, lifting people into the air. Now, this was done for a few different purposes, including military reconnaissance, uh, but the most interesting use was as a form of capital punishment, if you'll believe it. There were records from the reign of Emperor Wenchuan of the Northern Qi, who had condemned prisoners chucked off the top of towers attached to kites to do things like test new designs to see if the kites could be managed or controlled. Uh, long story short, they could not, as it turns out, and all but one of Wenchuan's prisoners proved unable to fly. Uh, well, sorry, I-, I suppose they did fly just only in one direction and then very briefly at that. Uh, There's going to be a lot of this today. A lot of people plummeting to their deaths from tall towers while trying to trying to fly. So, you know, get used to it, I suppose. Um, but before we move on, there was there was one fella who actually survived. Uh, there was a bloke, his name was Yuan Huangtou, right? Uh, perhaps the first ever example of human flight in 559 CE. He managed to control his kite after being chucked off the top of a tower, and he flew over two kilometres before landing safely. Well, I say safely. While he did survive the landing, he was then recaptured and ultimately starved to death in prison. Emperor Wenchuang really wasn't mucking around, it seems. Anyway, kites are still around today, of course. Lots of fun to head out on a windy day and fly one. Um, And they spread out from China into the rest of Asia, into India, uh, eventually into Europe, and then across the Atlantic into the Americas, where one very famously was used, so the story goes, in 1752 by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, He used a kite to prove that lightning was indeed caused by electricity. But obviously, that's another story. Kites might not seem like much, but they are a very important starting point in the history of flight and studying them and how they work, how they generate lift and drag. This was a big part in getting humans into the air in later centuries as well. So, I mean, thousands of years later in the 19th and 20th 20th centuries, as as aviation pioneers like the Wright brothers worked to figure out how to get their flying machines to, to function, They investigated kites and the aerodynamics of kites to better understand how things fly. So the next time you board an aeroplane and jet off somewhere, remember that it is thanks ultimately to the ancient Chinese and the humble kite that you're able to cruise these days at 30,000 feet. So as much as the history of flight is about us getting humans into the air and allowing humans to fly... Kites still are a very important part of this story. The fact that we managed to get anything to fly at all is a, is a significant milestone. And when it comes to the ancient Chinese, it wasn't just kites that, uh, that they got to first when it came to flight. It was also helicopters, uh, hot air balloons, and perhaps even blokes strapping wings onto themselves and trying to fly that way. Now, I'm, you know, talking about helicopters, I'm not, I'm not saying that people were flying around ancient China in Boeing AH-64 Apache attack helicopters, but in around 400 BCE the Chinese invented a small flying toy that we call the bamboo copter. Um, It's not really much more than a rotor on a stick. You spin the stick around very, very fast between your palms and then zoop, the rotor will fly off into the air. And again, a primitive and these days very unexciting form of flight, certainly not one that's going to carry a person anywhere. But again, it laid the groundwork for technological marvels like the Boeing AH-64 Apache attack helicopter, and we had to start somewhere. 
Um, and also, I also gave the Chinese credit for hot air balloons, and that might be stretching things a little bit because they're not strapping baskets to great big massive balloons and flying through the air. But no, the Chinese invented the sky lantern, which is, when you break it down, just a very small hot air balloon. A sky lantern, you may, you may have seen them. It's a, a, a folded sort of shell of paper with an opening at the bottom. Um, and then there's a, a frame that holds the shell open and can have a little candle put in it. You light the candle, the candle heats up the air inside the paper, and then zoop, off flies the paper balloon into the sky. Skylands are, you know, quite famous for their use in, in festivals, even today in many, many different parts of the world. Uh, very pretty to watch. But uh, way back when they had, they had military applications, once again, signaling, communication, whatever else. But they can be pretty dangerous, sky lanterns. They can start fires if they land in the wrong place with the candle still lit. And, uh, of course, they can also leave litter and debris across landscapes if they land and, you know, are just left without having been cleaned up. Anyway, we'll move on now from these early forms of flight, none of which involve actually getting humans into the air in any meaningful sense, um, and instead talk about what is perhaps... The funniest part of the history of flight, not that it would have been very funny for the people involved, the grand old tradition of trying to conquer the skies by strapping wings to yourself and throwing yourself off a tower. Now, this has been a very big part of scientific investigation into human aviation, and it, uh, it has not gone so well for most involved, I think it's fair to say. There is a reason uh, that today, rather than strapping wings to ourselves, we cram ourselves into flying cigars to speed above the landscape at hundreds of kilometres an hour. Uh, and this is because no one has ever really managed to fly by just wearing a pair of wings and flapping their arms really fast. Um, well, again, I say no one, but, uh, you know, they have, people have done it, they've managed to fly, but again, just very briefly, and usually with a result that has left them either unwilling or perhaps even unable to give it another go. So let's get into it here, starting, as I mentioned, with the ancient Chinese. Although I'm not 100% convinced on this one, um, according to the Book of Han around the year 100 CE, Emperor Wang Mang was in need of a specialist to do some scouting for him. Uh, one such bloke came forth, said, G'day, Wang Mang, I'm the man for the job, check this out. The bloke stuck bird feathers onto his arms and then apparently jumped off a tower, glided 100 metres and then landed safely, no worries at all. I wasn't able to find out much about this story that made it sound even remotely convincing. I suspect that it did not happen, uh, especially when you hear about some of the stuff that has happened to others that attempted similar feats. But the stories of people flying in this way at least date back to ancient China, even if the ancient Chinese never quite managed to uh, to crack the case on that one. But we move out of the ancient period into the medieval period and beyond for the next part of our story, the, the phase of the history of flight that mainly involved blokes throwing themselves from high places while attached to uh, optimistically designed apparatus, shall we say. Uh, it doesn't seem like a huge amount of progress was made, even as the centuries passed throughout many different regions around the world. Uh, men, it was it was always men, jumped from high places with wings or machines or ornithopters, and regardless of who, when, or where they were, they generally just went splat. In around 875 CE, the Andalusian Berber polymath Abbas Infernas, he is said to have covered himself in feathers and strapped feathered wings to his arms, uh, and then with a running start, he hurled himself off a tall building, apparently managed to glide quite a decent distance, but failed to factor in the landing and was quite badly injured when he hit the ground at some speed. 
there's another story from around the year 1000, uh, a Turkic fella by the name of Abu Nasser al-Jawari. Uh, he took a different approach, famous as a lexicographer and the author of an Arabic dictionary. Al-Jawari made a very brief career change as an aviator later in life. And the reason that it was a very brief career change was, well, can you guess? Rather than feathers, he used two rudimentary wooden wings and didn't so much fly as just fall, uh, crashing straight to his death from the top of a tower. So not just a brief career change, but also, I think it's fair to say, a very unsuccessful one. Just a few years later, around the year 1010, there was an English monk whose name was Ilma of Malmesbury. He made another historic attempt at flight. The story goes that he had read that ancient Greek myth of Icarus and obviously obviously didn't really get the point of the story as a warning against hubris because he looked at that and seemed to decide, well, I mean, I could do better than that. He constructed wings for both his arms and legs this time. He suited up and climbed to the top of Malmesbury Abbey and jumped off. And would you look at that? He managed to glide around 200 metres, but again, just like Abbas Infernus, didn't factor in the landing. Aylmer smacked into the ground feet first and broke both of his legs so badly that he never walked again. When he was later asked about what went wrong with the flight, I guess apart from the painfully obvious fact that he had shattered both of his legs, he said that he would have been able to avoid injury if only he'd given himself a tail as well as his wings. Oh, of course. There are so many more examples of this sort of thing, uh, these attempts that were made and were ultimately fruitless. In around 1165, for instance, Byzantine Emperor Manuel I Comemnus was held, it was, he was holding a great big festival in Constantinople to show off its marvels and wonders. And part of this show was a fella jumping off the Hippodrome of Constantinople in a winged flying machine. And this turned into an altogether different type of show when, can you guess, he plummeted straight down and, as I say, went splat. And that was the end of him. There are so many other stories, but we can leave the medieval era behind now and move into the Renaissance by talking about one of its most famous figures, the man, the myth, the legend. Here he is, Leonardo da Vinci, episode 204, Get Across It. As you may know, da Vinci designed more than a few different flying machines based on his observations and investigations. He studied the flight of birds and experimented with aerodynamics. But I have to say... He never quite got it right. He mainly designed ornithopters. These are machines that fly with flapping wings, just like a bird flaps its wings to fly. There's one problem with ornithopters, however. Well, sorry, no, there are very, very many problems with ornithopters, um, uh, principally that humans are too heavy and don't have the muscular power or endurance required to flap the wings of an ornithopter hard or long enough to stay airborne. So despite being very cleverly based on the flight of birds, uh, between some rather optimistic science and the realities of human weakness, da Vinci's ornithopters just weren't going to cut it. It turns out that we are not designed to fly even with the aid of mechanical apparatus like an ornithopter. But in the hundreds and hundreds of sketches and drawings that da Vinci did relating to flight, he didn't just design ornithopters. He also designed a rudimentary helicopter as well. It was called the aerial screw, and it was essentially an Archimedes screw, a water screw, the type of screw that you can use to raise water from, from a lower place to a higher place. Uh, and it was this screw repurposed for air travel, affixed to a circular platform that you could stand on, the reasoning being that air is essentially just a, I mean, 
again, I'm not basic, I'm not saying that he got everything right. Da Vinci is obviously a genius, but he didn't didn't quite nail everything. His his reasoning was that the air was just slightly less thick than water, and if you were able to turn a, a, a screw fast enough in it, then it it, it would fly. And the issue here is that the screw needs to turn extremely quickly for this to actually work, uh, more quickly than anyone could figure out how back then. The theory is, uh, I mean, we'll give him some credit for it. There are a couple of holes in the idea here and there. Um, and in practice, certainly back then, it wasn't remotely possible due to the limitations of the time. But I will say this, engineers these days have taken Da Vinci's designs and they have built a, a miniature version with light materials. And if you believe it, they have managed to make a modified version of Da Vinci's aerial screw take to the air. So I reckon, you know, I reckon he gets some credit for that. Da Vinci, very clever bloke, uh, also designed some other flying contraptions, uh, fixed-wing gliders and parachutes, all sorts of stuff, really. This bloke was very, very excited about getting humans into the air. But unfortunately, sadly, despite his best efforts, none of his ideas really got off the ground. Oh, thank you. Still, uh, Da Vinci wasn't the only one working on the problem. There are still people engaged in the grand old tradition of aviation pioneers everywhere, throwing themselves from high places, uh, such as an Italian scientist whose name was Giovanni Damiano. Uh, although, as he lived in Scotland at the court of James IV, he went by John Damien. Damiano built himself a set of wings out of chicken feathers and, like so many men before him, lusting for the endless freedom of the blue skies above him, attempted flight, this time by jumping off the walls of Stirling Castle. And wouldn't you know it, he hurtled straight down to the ground and broke his leg. And while they say hindsight is twenty twenty, Damiano insisted that he would have succeeded if he'd used eagle feathers instead of chicken feathers, although he never tested that theory. Uh, it wasn't just jumping off walls and towers, though. Inspired by da Vinci, Venetian polymath Fausto Varanzio designed a functional parachute in the early 17th century. Uh, the legend goes that he even tested it himself in 1617 at the age of 65, although this story is far from certain. But in any case, a few years later in 1630, Ottoman scientist and inventor Hersafen Ahmed Celebi is said to have made a huge achievement in the history of flight. He flew across the Bosporus using a glider. Celebi jumped off the Galata Tower on the west side of Istanbul, clean across the Bosporus and landed on the other side. At least that's what he claimed to have done, and while Celebi was undoubtedly an extremely skilled inventor, he also did really love to tell a tall tale about himself. And considering that the distance between the one side of the Bosporus and the other, considering the distance of the flight that this guy claimed to have undertaken, was over three kilometres, it's very doubtful he actually made it over the Bosporus Strait, but historians generally agree that he did manage a sustained, unpowered flight, perhaps the very first in human history. It just, you know, wasn't over a distance of three and a half kilometres. We can leave the Renaissance period behind now and move ever closer to today's world of jumbo jets and Boeing AH-64 Apache attack helicopters and talk about the next great innovation in the history of flight, ballooning. Balloons really got going in the late 18th century, but it was actually in 1670 that the first ever scientifically viable method of human flight via ballooning was made by the Italian scientist Francesco Lana de Terzi. 
After measuring the air pressure at sea level, Duterte designed a ship that would have four enormous copper spheres attached to it. And what, you may wonder, would be in these copper spheres? Nothing. And I really do mean nothing. Duterte proposed that creating a vacuum in these spheres would actually make the ship fly into the air. How? Because a vacuum is lighter than air. Never mind hot air. What about no air? A no air balloon? Now, in theory, this would work. The only problem is that the copper spheres that Duterte designed definitely would have collapsed. They would never have been able to hold onto a vacuum. They would have just imploded, right? But still, all the same, the science behind the idea is very sound. And even today, scientists and engineers are still investigating the possibility of a vacuum airship. It is definitely possible. You just need a material that is both strong enough to contain a vacuum without collapsing and light enough, right, to not prevent the vacuum from being able to lift the entire ship. So finding a a substance that is both strong enough and light enough is the challenge. It's a very interesting area of research, but not a very fruitful one yet. However, as I say, well within the realm of possibility, we could see scientists and engineers crack the case and and design a viable vacuum airship, although to what purpose I'm not 100% certain, given the total dominance of, you know, extremely fast aeroplanes in today's world of aviation. Anyway, we can move on from the no air balloon and talk again about the hot air balloon or balloons that have other lighter than air substances inside them. Uh, For a long time, lighter than air aviation was all the rage. This was the main focus of aviation research. Um, I say lighter than air. This refers to the fact that the flying machine in question flies due to being lighter than the air around it, so as such it rises, and uh, lighter than air aviation is in contrast to heavier than air aviation, which is the main type of flight today, Uh, planes, helicopters, gliders, drones, these things are all obviously heavier than the air around them, but they are able to generate sufficient lift to overcome that and still take to the skies, but we'll come to that in due course. Back in the 18th century, it was all about lighter-than-air flight, particularly after experimentation began with hydrogen as a lighter-than-air gas that could be used to fill balloons. It wasn't all hot air. Sometimes as well, it was hydrogen. And I want to tell you about the, uh, the first bloke to fill a balloon with hydrogen to make it fly because it is a very bloody funny story. After the Scottish scientist Joseph Black suggested that you could indeed use a light gas like hydrogen to fill a balloon and make it fly, a French scientist named Jacques Charles decided to put this to the test in 1783 in Paris. Charles spent four days filling a four-metre balloon with hydrogen gas, uh, which he made by pouring hundreds of litres of sulfuric acid onto half a tonne of scrap iron, And as the days passed and as this marvel of the age began to inflate and then float in the air, crowds gathered to watch it get bigger and bigger and higher and higher. And guess who was one of the people in the crowd watching? None other than Benjamin Franklin himself. Here he is again. He keeps cropping up, doesn't he? Anyway, after the four days, as I say, it took to fill this balloon, Charles uh, ultimately, finally, released it into the air on the 27th of August, 1783, and the balloon rose majestically into the air, catching the wind and sailing northward, demonstrating to all those in attendance that an age where humans could take to the skies and conquer the vast blue expanse above us 
was not too far off. What a time to be alive, to witness such an event, to see the steady march of progress continue in this way. Our ingenuity, our genius made real in the form of this stately, regal balloon, inspiring hope and admiration and also abject terror, apparently, in people. Because when the balloon finally began to come down near a small village north of Paris... The villagers there were so scared of it that they, this is not a joke, they grabbed knives and pitchforks and attacked it as it descended on the village and thus ended the first ever hydrogen-powered flight. Although, I will say, it was far from the most disastrous, as of course we will come to eventually. Anyway, quite aside from Charles Balloon, uh, 1783 was an extremely exciting and very important year for ballooning in general. And to talk about 1783 in more detail, it is time to meet the Montgolfier brothers. How do you do, boys? Here they are now, Joseph Michel and Jacques Etienne, a pair of proud Frenchmen both. They had had a long interest in flight. Uh, As a teenager, Joseph Michel jumped off the roof of the family house with a parachute that he had made himself. Teenage boys are generally getting up to idiotic things like this, as I can personally attest. Um, But it seemed to really stick for Joseph Michel. Never really grew out of the whole being high in the air phase. Um, And like any good big brother, he quickly roped in his little brother. He roped in in Jacques Etienne in the action here. And in 1783, as adults, they built themselves a hot air balloon. Not a hydrogen balloon, but a balloon not... All that unlike the ones you might see today in principle. Great big sack of air um, that it wasn't a basket put underneath. It was more like a gallery that was affixed around the opening at the bottom. Uh, and then an iron frame underneath the uh, underneath the balloon at the opening of it where you could light a fire and the hot air would rise and obviously inflate the balloon. And this is the problem. This is the problem with early hot air balloons. You are lighting a fire underneath something that is extremely flammable. Um, Montgolfier, the Montgolfier brothers mainly built their balloons out of paper wallpaper to be specific it was a a key component of what they were building these balloons out of and so one of the great challenges of this era in ballooning was trying to make sure that the balloon didn't catch fire from the source of the hot air underneath it now uh, as we'll talk about there were various safety measures put in place uh, by aviation pioneers like the Montgolfier brothers to try to make sure that their balloons didn't catch fire but all the same it added a another level of excitement, I suppose you could say, to anyone going up in one. I mean, look, hot air balloon rides, very exciting. I can say from personal experience, I've been up in a hot air balloon, lots of fun, very exciting. But it would be a very different type of exciting if the balloon were to catch fire while you are up up in the air in one of them. So uh, certainly something that, that people like the Montgolfier brothers were very keen to avoid, as we'll talk about in a second. On the 4th of June, 1783, uh, a few months before Charles' hydrogen balloon went up, the Montgolfiers launched the very first unmanned hot air balloon flight in history. And I say unmanned because it certainly was unmanned, uh, but it was not unsheeped, nor was it unducked, or indeed for that matter, unroosted. At the Palace of Versailles, in front of a captive audience that included King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette, Uh, This is before they had their heads chopped off, for those who are wondering. Uh, The Montgolfiers filled their balloon with hot air and loaded a sheep, 
a duck and a rooster into the frame around the balloon and set it aloft. Now, this does sound like a bad joke, uh, but to their credit, the Montgolfiers were attempting to do some actual real science in putting these farmyard animals uh, into their balloon and sending them up into the sky. These animals were chosen for very particular reasons. The duck was chosen as a control animal, as ducks can fly high in the air. The rooster was included as a test bird because roosters don't typically fly all that high or at all. Can can roosters fly? I actually don't know. Most of my very limited understanding of chicken-based aviation comes from the 2000 stop-motion animated adventure comedy film Chicken Run, now that I think about it, which, which wasn't a documentary, I don't think. No, it wasn't, was it? Anyway, um, the rooster was chosen to see what effects flight might have on a bird that was unused to being so high in the air, while the sheep was chosen. Have I mean, have a listen to this, right? The sheep was chosen because it was thought it would be a reasonable stand-in for the physiology of a human. I mean, look, humans, sheep, you know, there's not all that much difference, right? I thought the Montgolfiers were from France, not from bloody New Zealand. But interestingly, I mean, the reason they did this, right, was because back then, we humans just didn't know what happened when you flew right like we know today that you know it can make your ears a bit sore with the with the pressure imbalance and and, and all that sort of stuff but this is something that's so completely new to humanity that they weren't taking risks by sending humans up in case i don't know their heads exploded or something it sounds ridiculous to us today because you know i'm sure many people listening have been in an airplane and your and your head presumably remains you know thoroughly unexploded to this very day but back then they needed to run these tests to see what was going to happen. But here's the best part. Initially, the, the, the plan wasn't to send up animals. King Louis XVI, right, who was the one signing off on all of these experiments, he took a page out of Emperor Wen Xuan's book and actually suggested that condemned criminals were sent up in the balloon to test what would happen in case it was disastrous. It was, you know, it, it was a punishment then on these blokes who were, who were fated to die anyway. Not a bad deal for the criminal, really. Instead of, being, instead of being executed, you get a nice little balloon ride. How about that? But in any case, it didn't happen. The Montgolfiers politely declined the king's suggestion to potentially kill people via ballooning. And so instead, they sent up these farmyard animals. And I'm happy to say, right, that the flight was a total success. The balloon landed gently enough as the, uh, as the, the hot air in the balloon receded. And these three animals were completely unharmed although perhaps you know more than a little confused but imagine the sheep going back to her paddock and telling the telling all of her mates what she'd been up to that week unbelievable what a story she'd have to tell anyway with this demonstration of their hot air balloon right being such a success the montgolfiers then decided that it was time to test a flight with people in the gallery around the balloon instead of animals and so later that year on the 15th of October, Jacques Etienne became the first person in recorded history to be lifted from the ground by a hot air balloon in the backyard of their workshop as part of a little tethered test flight. He, he didn't really go all that high, certainly not as high as the first official manned test flight, which took place on the 19th of October, 1783, when another balloon was sent up into the sky, although unlike the one with the animals, this one remained tethered to the ground just in case. It had for its passengers Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier, a scientist, Jean-Baptiste Rivion, a wallpaper manufacturer, 
and Giraud de Filet, a bloke who is famous for going up in a hot air balloon and not much else. Uh, by the way, you might think it's weird that a wallpaper manufacturer was one of the first people to fly in a hot air balloon, but uh, Revillon had actually been a critical part of getting the balloon in the air. Uh, as I mentioned before, the Montgolfiers made their balloons in part from wallpaper, the wallpaper that Revillon made, uh, and also used his premises as their workshop. So he was a big part of the Montgolfier success. Anyway, this flight was also a success. The Montgolfiers grew ever bolder after the uh, after the three blokes returned to the ground unharmed and perfectly safe. And so a month later, on the 21st of November, still in 1783, the Montgolfiers decided to launch the first ever untethered balloon with human passengers that history had ever seen. Again, Louis XVI was very keen to use condemned criminals. What is it with kings and emperors wanting to make their prisoners fly? Unbelievable. Who do they think they are? Bloody Robin Aaron from Game of Thrones? But no, no. De Rosier, the scientist from before, and a nobleman named Marquis Francois de Hollande, they begged for the honour of being the first to ascend into the sky in this way. And so, again, the king didn't get to make the bad men fly. The wood fire was lit in its iron cradle under the balloon. The two men clambered into the wooden gallery that was built around the balloon's opening. And then, for the first time in recorded history, humans took to the sky in an untethered hot air balloon with de Rosier and Delonde flying around 900 metres into the air. What a sight. What a spectacle. Humans at last conquering the skies, proving ourselves masters of yet another domain. Well, sort of. After travelling around eight or nine kilometres, the two blokes decided that they'd better land because the sparks and the embers coming off the fire were threatening to set the balloon alight and they didn't want to chance it. They had been sent up with buckets of water and sponges to put out little fires in the, uh, in the balloon if they emerged. But still, I think they were very wise to cut the flight short and make it back to Earth safely. They did have another, uh, enough fuel to continue for a, a fair distance, but they decided, no, they would return to Earth without, you know, burning themselves to cinders. And as the balloon touched down, as the first ever untethered manned hot air balloon flight came to a successful conclusion, it proved that humanity was on its way to the heavens. This flight was a monumental achievement. And unlike so much of the prior uh, research, I suppose you could say, into aviation, this milestone was reached safely without anyone breaking their legs or, you know, going splat. And it made ballooning immensely popular in conjunction with the first ever manned hydrogen balloon flight, which happened just a few days afterwards on the 1st of December, still in 1783. Huge year for ballooning. And uh, this was, again, old mate Jacques Charles. Uh, he launched himself skywards with engineer Nicolas-Louis Robert, uh, who, with his brother and Jean, had helped Charles build his, uh, his hydrogen balloons. Charles and Robert reached a height of around 550 metres, and they flew for over two hours in total. They travelled 35 kilometres, a very long flight, both in time and distance. And this, once again, demonstrated the potential of ballooning. These two also took with them a thermometer and barometer, and so they became the first people to ever gather meteorological data from the atmosphere. And after they landed, Charles decided to go up again by himself, but this time he wanted to test how high he could go. He managed to climb, get this, he managed to climb 
3,000 meters into the air. That's almost 10,000 feet. Two weeks ago, no one had ever left the Earth's surface in a balloon without a tether. And now someone is a third of the way up to a modern aeroplane's cruising altitude. So when I say ballooning took off in 1783, holy moly, this became an obsession for so many people. After the unbridled success of the Montgolfiers and of Charles, so many people got into ballooning. And in the years following 1783, all sorts of ballooning firsts were made, although I have to say not all of them were positive. Um, in 1785, Jean-Pierre Blanchard and John Jeffries became the first people to fly over the English Channel. Nice one, boys. Uh, but later that year, the first ever major, major aviation disaster took place when a balloon crashed into the town of Tullamore in Ireland, burning down around 100 houses. Oops. And remember De Rosier, one of the blokes that first uh, in that first untethered flight? He attempted to combine hot air and hydrogen-based designs together to design a new type of balloon. And uh, given the flammability of hydrogen, you won't be surprised to learn that he burnt himself to a crisp when the hydrogen caught fire. Again, there is more on hydrogen fires in, in, uh, in aviation coming. Don't you worry about that. But ballooning spread from Western Europe to other parts of the world. Uh, balloons were first flown in the US in 1793. And constant progress was made on making the, these balloons easier to steer and control. So they could be raised or lowered or, or moved in a certain direction. Uh, without difficulty. Broadly speaking, however, the overall design of the hot air balloon hasn't changed too much from how they looked in the late 18th century. Great big balloon, basket underneath, just like today. We moved away from the Montgolfier design of having a sort of framework around the base of the balloon. Instead, we moved towards what Charles, how Charles designed his hydrogen balloons with the basket hanging underneath. But broadly speaking, when we're talking specifically about ballooning, hot air ballooning or hydrogen balloons, whatever else, the design hasn't changed too much, and, and despite the fact that you can see hot air balloons made in the shape of castles or cartoon characters these days, the fundamental design of hot air balloons remains unchanged after over 200 years. However, in other areas of ballooning, as more and more progress was made, more and more emphasis was put on the controllability of these vehicles, we move into a different realm of aviation that sort of takes us away from, I mean, I guess they kind of are still balloons, but it's a slightly different form of them, one that falls sort of into its own category. To close out our, both our chat about lighter than air flight and indeed this week's episode, we now turn to what came after balloons. They're sort of their natural uh, successor, airships, dirigibles and zeppelins, still not quite sure on the specific differences between all those three things. The, all the aviation nerds are sitting at their keyboards ready to rip me to shreds in the contact form. Give me your worst, you absolute nerds. Uh, but as we move into the 19th century, as people continue to seek new ways to make balloons more steerable, more controllable, if, if that's a word, um, some pretty significant design changes began to take place. And the most significant of these design changes was, of course, the shape of the balloons from round or sphere-like to elongated and, I don't know, ellipsoid, if that's a word. Is it a word? Oh, hang on one second, let's have a look. It is. An ellipsoid is a surface that may be obtained from a sphere by deforming it by means of directional scalings or, more generally, of an affine transformation. Sure, that'll do. Sounds about right. 
Anyway, the reason that these largely spherical balloons underwent affine transformation or whatever it is, is because people started putting engines and propellers on them in order to, once again, steer and control them. You whack a propeller on a flying machine and, oh baby, you can now point it in the direction you want it to go and zoop, you are off. This was first put into practice by another Frenchman, Henri Giffard, who in 1852 demonstrated the first ever steam-powered airship, a dirigible, I think, uh, great big long thin hydrogen balloon with a steam engine underneath it. Now, you're playing with fire there, quite literally, putting a steam engine near a balloon filled with hydrogen, but it worked. No worries. Giffard took to the air from Paris once again and flew 27 kilometres in around three hours steering with the use of a sail-like rudder at the rear of the airship. Now, look, he wasn't turning the thing on a dime, I'm not saying that, but even the fact that he could turn it from left to right as he flew was a huge advancement in aviation. And this is what is truly remarkable about this flight. Giffard was able to steer. He was able to decide where to go rather than be at the whim of the winds sort of to a point because he actually wasn't able to fly back to Paris after he'd finished uh, the flight uh, because the steam engine wasn't powerful enough to propel the airship against the wind. But that's not the point. A flying machine could now be controlled. It could be steered and humans took another step towards the total mastery of the skies. Airships continued to develop as the years continued. In 1863, American inventor Solomon Andrews offered his brand new airship design, one that could be steered without a motor, to Abraham Lincoln for use in the American Civil War, although he was turned down. In 1872, German engineer Paul Henlein built and flew an airship with an internal combustion engine. Uh, this engine actually very cleverly made use of the gas in the balloon as fuel for the engine. So not only was the gas the thing keeping the balloon aloft, but it was also the thing powering the engine. Very, very smart piece of engineering. Uh, and in, then in 1883, uh, French scientist Gaston Tissandier bunged an electric motor onto an airship and in doing so became the first person in history to achieve electricity-powered flight. And it wasn't just the method of propulsion that improved from you know, the, uh, the, the steam-powered engine to the internal combustion engine to an electric engine. Airships also became easier to steer with rudders and wings and all sorts of other things and ultimately became fully controllable even in the face of adverse weather conditions. For instance, in 1884, Charles Renard and Arthur Constantine Krebs made the first fully controlled free flight in an airship by travelling eight kilometres in 23 minutes, taking off and landing in the same place, which again was quite an achievement. However, despite all of these improvements, despite the fact that these airships were easier to control and to steer, and also were a lot faster than they had ever been before, they could go at up to 20 kilometres an hour, which was which is as about as fast as an average human can run at full tilt, these airships still remained impractical. They were very fragile, they were, they were completely unable to carry any heavy weight at all, and they weren't very durable. They didn't last much longer than a few flights before they just kind of fell to bits. But as the 19th century came to a close, as we look towards the 20th century, enormous changes were coming to the world of aviation, and not just with lighter than air 
aviation either. I mean, rigid airships were on the way. Uh, these airships were able to travel great distances, carrying great loads. The bloke who pioneered this technology was none other than the German Count uh, Ferdinand von Zeppelin, a name that you might have heard before. But no, far more important than any developments that took place with airships or any other lighter-than-air aviation were the developments taking place with heavier-than-air aviation. As humans moved into the 1900s, the age of the aeroplane arrived, with aviation pioneers like Otto Lilienthal, Gustava Whitehead, and of course, the Wright brothers, paving the way for the modern Airbus A380s and Boeing 747s that soar around the world today. But to hear about the century that saw humans truly master the skies, to hear about all the incredible feats of invention and engineering that were done to take us into the air, you'll have to come back next week. As we get across everything from the first controlled and sustained flight with a powered heavier-than-air aircraft to aeroplanes that fly so fast they break the sound barrier to our first successful flight on another planet. Join us next week for all that and a whole lot more. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans, at least for this week. Uh, I really wanted to give the history of flight a proper shake of the sauce bottle and so decided to split it into two weeks. I think you can sort of see, based on how much detail I wanted to go into with this stuff, that we needed two episodes to get across uh, everything to do with the history of aviation. So I do hope you enjoyed part one and we'll be back next week with part two to talk about aeroplanes and the Wright brothers and, and helicopters and, 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 every, and everything else. It's going to be great and I hope you can uh, you can tune in then as well. Closing out the show with all the boring normal housekeeping stuff uh, right here and right now, I want to thank once again all the people who have been getting in touch, uh, sending in topic suggestions and ideas and feedback. It's been great to hear from people. Had a, a ton of extra emails in, in the last couple of weeks, and I've really enjoyed reading them all. So thank you so much to people getting in touch. If you want to get in touch, halfhousehistory.net, head to the contact form there at the website, uh, and you can send me an email. I read every single one. Don't reply to them all. Just I just can't. I'm sorry. But I do read each and every one. Um, and uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, I'm pushing it back to after episode 250, we are going to start quarter ass history. Uh, I think that's the name that I'm settling on. It was the first one that came to mind. And I had, I've had a couple of terrific suggestions, uh, but I'm going to stick with that for the time being. And let, I mean, look, if you've got a better idea, please send it in. I'm open to other suggestions. But uh, at the moment, I think quarter ass history is very fitting. Um, and uh, apart from that, again, merch. Patreon, you know how it goes. If you want access to ad-free episodes that also come with things like behind-the-scenes stuff, early access, show notes, uh, exclusive Patreon merch, patreon.com slash history. You can head over there, sign up today, and get access to these benefits immediately. Uh, but I think that's just about that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of the show. Thanks for contributing to its success. Thanks for telling your friends and your enemies and the people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. If there is an aircraft nerd in your life that you think would enjoy listening to this episode purely just to correct all the mistakes I made, be sure to send it through to them so they can uh, they can turn into a, a keyboard warrior and let me know about all the all the egregious errors I committed while talking about uh, aircraft and aviation. Uh, it is it's good. Look, it's good to hear from passionate people. I really do enjoy it. So that is that. Closing out the show as ever with a question posed on Reddit here. See you back here next week for the second half of the history of flight. Until then, leaving with this question posed by a dude guy man who asks, if we can use a hot air balloon to travel up into the sky. Why can't we use a cold air balloon to travel down into the oceans?